It's good to see faces. I'm so used to, not, not that I just mind seeing my wife, but it's like, I'm just used to seeing Lindsay all the time. It's good to see like other people. It's, seriously, I'm just like, wow, this is great. I'm so thankful. Thanks for joining us, whether it be in person or online. Uh, my name is Juan. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Church in the Square. I oversee uh, finance and mission, and I'm excited to be able to bring the word uh, to you guys this morning. Uh, first off, I'd want to thank our brothers, uh, Derek and Aaron, who preached the last couple weeks. They're our elder candidates. And um, I really thought it was, it was cool to see, as Paul says, just that desire uh, to seek, you know, the, the, the position of, overseeing, uh, of an overseer uh, it's definitely a noble task, and we're excited for them to be going through this eldership process. I, I really enjoyed um, their opportunity to share what God's been doing in their lives. Uh, Aaron, the way that you broke down uh, the scripture and were able to see how God was working in your life and looking back and reflecting on it, I thought was really was really beautiful and encouraging, so thanks for bringing that, bro. And then Derek, uh, I think he opened the word up with a lot of humility and reminding us of our security that we have in Jesus. And really the line that stuck out from his sermon that I thought was cool was he says, God secured his people before they had a chance to mess it all up. And I was like, yes and amen. You're totally right. Thanks for that. That was a good reminder. Anyways, I'm really excited that we're going to have an opportunity to... uh, gather this evening. I think, yeah, today, yeah, it's tonight. Tonight at 7 p.m., we have a members meeting, and we're going to focus on really getting an opportunity to talk to our elder candidates, to Aaron and to Derek. They're going to share a little bit of their story. Um, It'll be a good time for members to ask any questions from them, and obviously, we're going to be praying alongside with them, uh, asking for God's will to be done. Uh, Jason and I will also be talking about, like, uh, the process of eldership the, that they've gone through so far, and also looking at the qualifications of an elder. So hopefully you guys can join us uh, later this evening. Uh, so today we're going to continue in Romans chapter 8, and um, I'm going to give a high-level summary of really the second half of Romans um, Really, Paul, Paul begins in the second half describing the current state of believers in the creation. Uh, he says creation is groaning uh, with frustration as it anticipates the liberation along with believers. And then he talks about believers and he says that we're the same way. We're groaning for that final redemption. Then he pivots to the work of the Holy Spirit and talks about how the Holy Spirit intercedes with us with groanings that he says are too deep for words. Uh, words that can't even be expressed. And then the last couple of weeks, Aaron talked about how God works for good uh, for, those of those, for those of him who love him. And then Derek covered uh, us who are called according to his purpose. And what we're going to cover today is Romans 8, 31 through 34. And really, I'm going to be talking about three characteristics of God. And I'm going to talk about Christ's work. Uh, which confirms that our salvation is secure. And I don't know about you guys, but last week a sales guy told me not to bury the lead, so I'm not going to bury it this week. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to talk about three things, right? 
we're going to talk about a God who is, we're going to see in Scripture a God who's all-powerful, that he's powerful enough to save. We're going to see a God who is generous. He's provided the sacrifice for us. We're going to talk about a God who forgives. He's the judge. And then ultimately, we're going to look at Christ's work. He's our advocate uh, with a father. And through each, through, through each of these characteristics, I really want us to, to dive deep and obviously look at uh, other scripture, uh, but also ask our questions and really have an opportunity to examine ourselves. I'll, I'll share you know, some examples from my life. Hopefully that'll be instructive for you all. But really my hope is that I can um, encourage you, I can admonish you, and equip you uh, for the work of ministry so that uh, we can build up the body of Christ. So if you could go with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 34, uh, we'll, uh, verse 31, we'll begin to read. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Let's pray before we get started. Lord, I, I thank you, Father, for your grace. Uh, Lord, I take that for granted. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather in person with my brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, as we walk through Romans, it's apparent uh, that you, you, you're just masterful in how you've organized creation and your narrative. Lord, I'm thankful even as I think about the Trinity at the beginning of time, as we read in Genesis and now in Romans 8, as we see it uh, work together seamlessly in this perfect communion, God, to see the Father, the judge of all, to see the Holy Spirit interceding, dwelling inside of us on our behalf, and to see the Son at the right hand of the Father. Lord, how beautiful is that? Lord, and as I, I pray that as I open up your word, Father, that I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide my words, Father, give me, Lord, the words for your people. Lord, we know your scripture is living and is active. Father, it does not return void. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, wherever they are. Father, will you give them an opportunity to pause and reflect? Lord, I know that your word is powerful enough to change hearts and change lives. Lord, I ask that anything, Father, that comes from me, that is not of you, God, let it be forgotten. Lord, let me bring your word with humility, but at the same time with the authority that's been granted to me by you, Father. We pray, Lord, that this word, Lord, will be applicable, Lord, to our time here and now in our neighborhood, Father, in our city, Father, for my brothers and sisters, and ultimately for your glory. Amen. So as we look here, really, 
um, this back half of chapter 8, Paul is starting to give us a summary. He's, he's getting to this really summation of the chapter. And, and the way he does it is really interesting. Uh, if you have an ESV, the heading that he uses is God's everlasting love. The summary has um, seven questions and reminds us of a style that Paul used actually in Romans 3. That was called the diatribe. And uh, the diatribe is described when the speaker tries to persuade an audience by debating an imaginary opponent, uh, typically using uh, the second person singular. So in Romans 3, the way I described it is if Paul is kind of shadow boxing an imaginary opponent is he's trying to talk about God's righteousness. And if you remember uh, Romans chapter 3, I call it the, the no means section of Romans. It's one of my favorites. And at the same time, Paul is really transitioning his language. And you'll note at the beginning, he goes to a first person plural language, meaning that he starts using us and we. He's, he's talking to the early church and really coming alongside them to his community. And he's confirming to them things that he knows that are true. Today we're going to be covering five of those questions in verses 31 through 34. The one distinction that I want to draw between chapter 3 and chapter 8 is that Paul's line of questions here, he's not seeking to go up against an opponent. Instead, he's actually trying to encourage believers. And really there's four questions in the structure of this passage that are going to be kind of our guiding principles. So the first question that he talks about is, what then shall we say in response to these things? The second one in verse 33 says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The third question is, who is the one who condemns? And the fourth question is, who can separate us from the love of Christ? That one Jason's going to cover next week. So each of those questions provides insight into God's character and gives us a belief in our positive assurance. So let's get started with verse 31 and looking at a God who is powerful and has power to save. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When Paul is talking about these things, he's really referring to the first eight chapters of, of Romans how he uses it to defend the gospel. And then he, he uses the word we here in the first instance to really jump into the next question. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a rhetorical question, right? The expected answer to this is no one. Now, now how do we know that no one is really the response? And how do we know that God is for us? Well, just think about what Paul's been writing leading up to this. Paul has talked about a God who's orchestrated the following to bring salvation to sinners. Paul said that God works all things for good, that God foreknows us, God predestines us, that God, God calls us, God justifies us, God glorifies us, so yes, God is for us. We are the objects of his love. When Paul's talking about who can be against us, he, he really doesn't mean that Christians don't face opposition, 
right? Throughout Scripture, we see that, we are, that there are enemies that you and I encounter. However, it means that the Almighty God is really for us. If He's for us, does it really matter who's against us? Meaning, no enemy can prevail against a God like that. Yet as I hear these words and I try to share them with you, oftentimes as a believer, I walk in a state of fear. And I imagine I'm not the only one that feels this way. Why is it that as believers, we walk around in fear? What are those circumstances that keep us from believing that we serve an all-powerful God? And really, as I was meditating on these, I had a lot of different things that came to mind. But at the 11th hour, the Lord brought to mind two things. One of them is really forgetfulness. And the other is perspective. And what I mean by forgetfulness is you see in Scripture, one thing that I constantly see is how God continues to repeat himself, whether it be in the Old Testament with his people, Jesus in the New Testament to his disciples, and even as we've gone through Romans over the last couple of years, we see Paul repeating himself over and over to the church. It really reminds me of a verse in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, when God is speaking to the Israelites and looking at their exile from Egypt. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing to know what was in your heart. Imagine, so God is asking his people to remember for 40 years what he's done. And really, I think like forgetfulness is a human trait. Um, I think it speaks to one of the things that Paul uses in A26 when he talks about human weaknesses. I think we're just a forgetful people. But what's also clear about that forgetfulness is that God reminds us, and the way that he reminds us a lot of times is in community. For example, we see this in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, right? When we participate, we do it together, and we remember what Christ has done on our, on our behalf. And really, studies make it clear that memory is shared in our most intimate relationship. Our information is stored in the minds of other people. And the way that I can relate to this is when I think about marriage. I know that uh, I don't really have to have a good memory about what's going on in my schedule because Lindsay keeps like 80% of it, so that's pretty good. And if I'm really honest with you guys, I'd say probably, I don't remember two-thirds of your names. Lindsay helps me with that too. So I just walk alongside her. Who's that guy? The guy with the glass? Oh, yeah, it's Josh Burns. Yeah, that's the guy. All right. So it's real. Uh, I think even in group settings, right, uh, in our small group, for instance, with the Barons, we have a group of believers, and collectively we know each other's story. I don't know everyone's story, but I share those memories with my brothers and sisters. So as elders of the church, we try to equip and encourage the body in ways to stay connected with Scripture and prayer and community. I think that this, the, the, the discipline of the daily readings that we, that we propose are valuable for that. And what, what, am I, what am I trying to say by that, right? What I'm trying to say is so often we forget if we're not daily in the Word, if we're not daily in this time of reflection. As I was thinking about how faithful the Holy Spirit is 
during my quiet time or as I talk to our group, here are some of the things that even in my own life, the Lord has reminded me. He says, do you remember growing up when there wasn't food on the kitchen table and I provided? Do you remember when you felt alone, when you were ridden with guilt and shame in a foreign country and I showed up? You didn't even know what to pray for. Do you remember when your company was sold and you had no idea what the next step would be? Do you remember when you went to a grieving mother and you didn't know what to pray for and you saw me powerfully work in that situation? I think the astounding part is that our God is faithful to show up. Maybe not in the way that we think that he's going to show up, but he does. And maybe not in the times that we think he's going to show up, but he does. And it's amazing that so often God shows up when we're in community, not when we're alone. I think the other element that really limits us from believing in God's power is perspective. Really, I think Paul does an amazing job of zooming us out, right? Getting out of the weeds and really into the forest and seeing the greater story. Paul reminds us, as I mentioned earlier, that God justifies us. God glorifies us. God predestines us. God calls us. Yet, we lack perspective. And what I mean by that is we live such a hurried and rushed life. We're running around everywhere. And I think that we allow the next thing in front of us to really cast a shadow of what we know to be true. And this is going to sound like a really silly example, but bear with me uh, as I was thinking about this. As I was even preparing for the sermon this week, uh, I had a couple of nights that I had said, all right, I'm going to dedicate this time to kind of revisit some of the, the passages. And of course, those couple of nights didn't happen because I got a, a last-minute phone call from work and I had to put a deck together. And then the other night, something else happened, and yeah, it snowed and we had to shovel. So, you know, stuff, stuff happens all the time. And in that moment, I'm afraid to come to you guys this Sunday because I'm like, I'm not going to be prepared for the sermon and I know that whether I'm prepared or not, that does not change my standing with God. I know what is true, yet what's in front of me gives me such a limited perspective. It really doesn't matter. God asked me to be obedient, and he's going to do the, the rest. This passage reminds me that God is for me. God is not against me. And I think this is what's amazing when we step back and we think and look at an amazing God that we serve, that he is he's the narrator he is the author. He's the one that writes himself into the story with Christ. And we're welcome into that story. So the, the Christian's confidence is in an all-powerful God, not in anything that you and I do. So turn with me to Isaiah 41.10, because I think this, this verse is really relevant. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Are you afraid? 
Remember that the Almighty God is for you and not against you. Let's continue in Romans and look at verse 32 and see that we have a generous God. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As we look at the passage, we see that God was the one who did not spare his own son. And this is probably a reference that Paul is giving to um, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. When Abraham was tested by God, he was willing to sacrifice his own son. But in the end, Isaac was spared. The Lord provided a ram, and he was able to offer him as a substitute on his son's behalf. However, when God acted for the salvation of, sin, of sinful human beings like you and me, he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. And then when Paul says that he gave him up, he means that God handed him over to death for us. We see this in Romans 4.25. It says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and our justification. Christ died and he became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Romans 3.25, it says, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by Jesus' blood to be received by faith. The next part of this passage, the next question that, that Paul has us tackle, he says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Really, this section of the passage is reinforcing how God continues to bless his people. He's already done the greater thing by giving up his son. So how can he do anything less? The gift is really given along with Christ. Paul is pointing us to Romans 8.17 to remind us of our union with Christ who is crucified. And it's really amazing. It's really startling as you see the description he uses here when he says that the way that God gives, it says that God gives graciously. It's really stressing the freeness of God's giving. Think about it. When God gives both to his son and to his sons and daughters, he does it willingly and he does it with an open hand. Paul speaks of believers being given all things. And what, what scholars agree about this passage is that it's also pointing back to Romans 8.17 and it's being understood in the terms of being coerced with Christ. Or perhaps the best thing to think about it the best way to think about it is that God graciously gives us all things connected with salvation. So why do we have worry? Why do we have fear? Really, I think here, Paul is reminding us that God's generosity and his love are an anecdote to our worry and our fear. God has created us for his glory and is willing to give up his only son why do we have to worry about anything else? So brother, sister, if you're worried, remember that our God is generous. That he freely gave up his son for you and for me. Let's continue to verse 33. It says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. So here Paul's really going to go back to a theme he's used before, and it's about the theme of God as judge and the people, us, being in a court of law. So he, he uses this in Romans chapter 2, verse 1-16. through 16. He speaks about God's righteous judgment. And he said that he would give to each person according to what they have done. Then in Romans 3, 19-20, Paul speaks about the whole world being accountable to God. And he asserted that no human being would be justified in his, in his deeds prescribed by the law. So then Paul here, for the third time, comes and he speaks about God as judge. But there's really a clear distinction here. This time it's addressed to Christians who are in the court of law. And in their case, Paul says that God will not entertain any accusations brought against them. As Romans 5.1 states, We have been justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So who's going to bring charges against those whom God has chosen? Uh, What Paul has in mind here in 8.33 are the accusations that could be brought up against believers before God the judge of all. And from my review of several of the commentaries, it's apparent that God is referring to the charges brought about by Satan. The very name Satan means accuser. And honestly, these charges would have substance, right? For we, we've all been guilty of sinning against God. But Paul still says that there's no accusations that can stand against God because he's the one who justifies. Obviously, God is sure to justify his own people. You know, often we're concerned about sins and wonder at the end if they're going to overcome us. But Paul here, he's assuring us that they will not. Why? Because it's God who justifies us. And as believers, our justification can never be overthrown. Yet again, as as I'm reading these passages, I think about my own life, and I think about how many of us, we hear these truths, yet, yet we walk around feeling guilty. And I think it's because we hear the voice of the accuser, like, bear with me here, do you ever, do you ever hear the voice saying something like, you're not worthy of this role. You're not worthy of this position. You're just not worthy. Do you ever hear something like, you're not a good parent? Or do you ever hear the voice saying that you don't belong here? And I want to make a clear distinction before I go any further. I'm I'm not referring to times when we're walking around guilty because we've sinned and we need to repent. You know, we're convicted by the Holy Spirit and we come to the Lord and confess and we ultimately let Him know what we've placed about Him, what what we've placed above Him, and He frees us from that. But when I read this passage, it really is, is referring to when the accuser is nagging us, reminding us of our former selves. And honestly, when this happens to me, I'm tempted to run back to my sin instead of rejoicing in the grace and work of Jesus. I remember feeling this kind of guilt through our family planning process. So my wife Lindsay and I have had a heart for adoption for many years, actually since we met. And a few years back, we started going through the international and domestic adoption process. Um, 
we decided that international was going to be challenging. It was going to take a few years. There's a lot of countries that were closing up. And so we focused on a state agency. And then at that time, we were going to go with a state agency, but we realized that uh, the time was going to be a few years, and really there wasn't much need there, so we felt another pivot to try to have biological children. And so, and then, and then follow adoption. And we tried to have biological children for a couple of years, and that didn't pan out. So then we pivoted back during COVID to go through a national adoption process. I think through, a, through it all, really, it's been three or four years at this point, God revealed to me and my wife the strong desire that we had to control our circumstances and the outcomes that we were going to bring about. And we confessed and we repented. And since that time, the enemy continues to remind me of my idolatry to control. And I think about it, I think like, how can I be so foolish to think that I have mastery over my family's future? Like, how foolish can I be? How idiotic is that? And in those moments, really, I'm drawn to despair. I kind of start to spiral and start thinking about my past and say, you know, you're right, who am I kidding? Not only am I trying to control things, I've had a history marked by lustful desires by seeking approval from others, from yearning for comfort, and so on. But Paul is reminding us in this passage that I am one of God's elect, that God's the one that justifies, that I'm a new creation, that Jesus is my Lord and not this guilt that I'm believing, that I'm never going to be able to earn my salvation or have anything to stand in my own as my own righteousness. I need to be reminded of how loved, embraced, satisfied, and secured I am in Jesus. And I think this is where community life is so important. It's those times when we're able to come to our groups and we're able to confess and share and be reminded of who we are in Christ. That you can come along, fellow believers, and mature together. And that they're able to point you back to Christ. Go with me to Isaiah Chapter 50, verse 8, because I think Paul is really thinking about this as he's talking in Romans 8.33. He says, He who vindicates me is near, Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. When God himself vindicates his people, no charges against them can stand. So the next time that you hear the evil one say that you're not a good parent, remind him that your heavenly father says, that you are right in God's eyes by faith. When you hear that you're not worthy of a role, of a description, a position, Scripture says that you're God's masterpiece, 
that he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. When you hear the enemy say that you do not belong here, Scripture says that you belong to Christ. And whether you live or you die, you belong to God. So do you feel guilty this morning? You and I have been justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's end with Romans 8.34. It says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? So Paul starts here asking, who is it, who is it to condemn? And the verb to condemn uh, that's used here is to pronounce a sentence upon a person after a determination of guilt. The answer, if you guys have followed along with Paul, is it's a rhetorical question again, and the answer is no one. And the, the answer to that is really immediately followed by his response. It says, it's this incredible truth. It says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for us. And it's true. Sometimes your heart condemns you. But this, the Scripture makes it clear about how we feel and what really is true. And so I want us to go to 1 John 3.20 for that. You guys can turn with me to 1 John 3.20. It says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandments, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. The second half of this passage, Paul says, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If you guys recall a couple weeks ago, Jason talked about um, the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf. Here we're told that the crucified Christ now intercedes for us in light of our possible condemnation. Christ acts as our advocate with God. He sits at the right hand and he points to his atoning sacrifice for us. So now there's no condemnation for us who believe in him. And really, if you step back, the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the moment that you and I believe in Christ... Our condemnation is gone forever. There's nothing left but the acceptance from the Son of God. So what does this all mean? So Paul stated emphatically that we can have a life in the middle of trouble, in the middle of sins, with complete assurance that the Almighty God 
has purpose to make us perfectly holy and gloriously happy, and literally nothing can prevent us what He has already determined for us. That we have the ultimate security in Christ. So brother, sister, and friend, Kino, be encouraged this morning. Are you afraid? Remember that the Almighty God is for you and He's not against you. Are you worried? Remember that God is generous, that He gave up His only Son for you and for me. Do you feel guilty? You and I have been justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, our salvation is secure in Christ. He's done the work by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God and is advocating for you and I as we speak. Let us receive these wonderful news with humility, with gladness in our hearts, and with thanksgiving. Let us believe that this morning. Let us walk around with that assurance as we seek to expand his kingdom here on earth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning, God, for the promises that we hear from the words of Paul. Lord, that we do not have to walk around with guilt, that we're no longer condemned. Father, that you've made us whole. Christ, that we are fully justified, that we can stand before the righteous God and look to the, to the work of Christ on our behalf. Thank you, God, that we serve an all-powerful God. Forgive us when we lack faith, when we forget of the glorious things that you have done in our lives. When we lack proper perspective, Lord, help us come alongside our brothers and sisters and remember together about the sweet story of Jesus. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.